0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series.
1: So welcome, everybody. My name is Doug McGill. I started the Rochester Meditation Center down in Rochester 16 years ago. That's how long I've been coming to Common Ground also. And uh, I'm the guiding teacher there. I started teaching uh, about seven years ago. We were just a sitting group for a long time and then uh, and then we listened to CDs for a long time. Um, and about seven years ago I just started to teach. I'm here today with my wife Donna in the back row. Hi Donna. She drove up with me and my brother Dave is here too. Hi, Dave. <laughs> Dave's a school teacher in St. Paul. So this is a little story called Don't Lie to Your Mother. John invited his mother over for dinner. During the course of the meal, his mother couldn't help but notice how beautiful John's roommate Julie was. Over the course of the evening, while watching the two interact, John's mother started to wonder if there was more between her son and his Roommate then met the eye. Reading his mother's thoughts, John volunteered. I know what you must be thinking, Mom, but I assure you, it's all platonic. Julie and I are simply roommates. About a week later, Julie came to John, saying, I just noticed ever since your mother came to dinner, I can't find our beautiful silver soup ladle. You don't suppose that your mother took it, do you? I doubt it, John said, but I'll send her an email just to be sure. So he sat down and wrote, Mom, I'm not saying that you took the soup ladle, nothing like that. But for some strange reason, since you came over for dinner, we've been unable to find the soup ladle. John received an email back. I'm not saying that you do sleep with Julie, and I'm not saying you don't. But I am saying if Julie were sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the soup ladle by now. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that's actually, in my mind, a story about mindfulness. Or at least it points to a certain quality that I want to uh, consciously and intentionally bring up tonight, um, which Julie's, which um, John's mother was really modeling extremely well, which was, we, you know, when we do this thing called meditation, and Dhamma, even better, I would say, you know, we really want to kick it up a notch and we want to start thinking like John's mother, (laughs) you know? We want to kind of get a little deeper than we normally do and uh, be a little bit um, clever, you know, in our investigations. That's very helpful.
2: Uh,
1: So those of you who are students of Dhamma might recognize that the second of the seven uh, factors of awakening the, the Buddha called it, it is called Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of reality. And it requir- it means that meditation is not just sitting on your cushion and closing your eyes and watching your breath. That's a good start. But after that, and that's actually step number one. The first factor to awakening is mindfulness, sati. And the second one is, once you've got some sati, is you start to investigate You know, look into some things, you know. Check out the beds here and there, you know. Like, look under the sheets and such. And uh, honestly, try to outwit the mind. Yeah? That's what we need to do. We need to outwit the mind because most of us come to meditation because our minds are driving us crazy. And we need to figure this thing out, man. And to do that, we need to actually access an intelligence that's higher than the mind, because obviously the mind can't figure itself out. We've been trying to do that for a long time. And kicking it up a notch in a certain sense means finding intelligence as opposed to just being smart. Finding um, the greater intelligence that we know we can sometimes tap into, and it has nothing to do with our scheming, logical point A to point B mind. And that's one way to think about meditation. Um, I got this hat the other day, which I'm not going to wear because it's indoors, but um, it just struck me a few months ago in one of my classes that so much of meditation is about um, what I was just calling kicking it up a notch, but it also might be called, again, John's mother, it's, it's get subtle. Don't, you know, it's like find another level of the mind or another way the mind works. Um, that's, that taps into a greater intelligence, and that is, that is always an intelligence that sees at a very subtle level of the mind. And of course that's why we sit, because we, we sit and we get some samadhi, and things calm down, and the, and the thought stream settles down a little bit, or at least we get some distance and we can see it, and then we can start to see the very subtle levels of the mind where things get started. And they'll either get started going in the direction of misery, or they'll get started going in the direction of happiness. And we have to be able to see at this subtle level. Um, and one of the benefits of the subtle level is, at the subtle level, we can actually have some influence on what happens, because the little seedlings of misery are easy, they're easily more easily dealt with, or as I sometimes say, the little sparks of misery. You know, we can deal with them, we can douse them before they go into a big, you know, raging fire. After which we can do nothing but just suffer. You know, but if we see the little seedlings or the little sparks of suffering down there, we can we can notice for one thing that awareness just tends to douse them. And likewise we can start to get knowledgeable about how sometimes those little sparks or seedlings are going in a positive and healthy direction, and we can nourish those with our attention and our awareness and they'll grow. So my hat says get subtle. And that's my motto. That's my meditation motto now, which I, I like to remember. So um, the topic for tonight, with, um, with a quote that I hope caught your attention if you read the calendar, um, comes from the last chapter of this book called Relax and Be Aware. And um, it's written by a teacher called Sayadaw Utejaniya. It was just published in December. And the editor, it says down here at the bottom of the cover page, is me, Doug McGill. And, Gil. and um, yeah, I spent several years, two or three years, um, editing this book, um, compiling the teachings of this teacher uh, into what I hope is a really concise handbook for meditating in the style that he, that he teaches, which is the Buddhist style, of course. Um, and um, I want to Talk a little bit about um, his this particular style of meditation tonight. What makes it distinct and interesting, and um, and how he how Sayadaw uh, gives us these instructions in, in in very specific terms about this process of getting subtle, quieting the mind, and then doing investigation at this that, that this root level of the mind where. Um, where things get started and where we can, with skillful attention, we can um, deal, with, uh, deal with thoughts that lead in the direction of suffering and we can also deal with intentions and thoughts that go in the other direction and we can, we can uh, help the positive thoughts to grow and we can just let the other ones wither away. So the, um, the quote that I wanted to get us started off on and serve as a kind of theme for the evening is a direct experience of reality will profoundly impact your practice it will change the way you perceive the world and the way you lead your life okay i'll just read it one more time a direct experience of reality will profoundly impact your practice it will change the way you perceive the world and the way you lead your life. And so the title for the talk tonight is A Direct Experience of Reality. Before I go any further, I'll say, um, just as a little plug, I, if anyone is interested after the talk and would like to get a copy of the book, um, you can come up and buy it from me directly, in which case... The profits won't go to Amazon, which is always a nice thing. And uh, I'd be very happy to sign it for you, too. So a direct experience of reality will profoundly impact your practice. I don't know about you guys, but when I read that quote, my mind says, well, aren't we having a direct experience of reality right now? But you you should know by now that I don't really credit my mind. I don't give my mind a lot of credit. I know that's what my mind is saying, but uh, hopefully my practice of getting subtle allows me to step back and question what my mind is saying because my mind is definitely saying this is a direct experience of reality, like 70 people and the solidity of the lectern and, oh, my body is right here for sure. And... um, this is my voice, and, and then I make assumptions about people and about my body, and and this definitely seems like what I normally call real. And it has certain qualities like density, you know, for the body and locality right here. And um and I make assumptions about like the little aches and pains that I'm feeling, that 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 type of thing. But the but Sayadaw seems to be saying that what we normally take to be a direct experience of reality is not a direct experience of reality. He seems to be saying that the purpose of meditation is to have a direct experience of reality and that it's this that will profoundly impact your practice. So what's he talking about? I think it's a really deep question to investigate. And um, to explore and to move towards an understanding, to the point that we start to experience the changes in life that he's talking about, which are going in the direction of health, clarity, uh, ease, energy, and all positive things. Even to the point that, so those of you who have been studying Dhamma for a while know that that in this tradition, there's often said to be three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And that second one, Dhamma, is reality. It's nature, the way things are. So what, what Saido is saying here and what the Buddha is saying is reality itself can be our refuge. It's our place of safety. Isn't that different from the way we normally think about reality? The mind makes a big thing out of reality, right? Like, it's a tough place. This is a tough world. There's the coronavirus. There's terrorism. There's Trump. There's Bloomberg. I don't know. <laughs> There's traffic jams and everything. What? This is supposed to be our refuge? You know, the mind has a hard time with this. But I think Sayadaw is saying there's another way to experience reality that flips it all around and turns reality into the safe place, into the healthy place, into into wisdom, into a refuge. And wouldn't it be great to experience reality that way? That, I think, is what Saito is talking about when he says a direct experience of reality will profoundly impact your practice. And it's been my experience in recent years and over the years that yes, sitting and practicing in this way does at first subtly and then later not so subtly, it changes the way we experience reality and things start to soften and more and more one can go with the flow of life, which is another way of referring to that wisdom for me that I was talking about. There's There's a wisdom that guides life, that that flows life. And it's the same wisdom that makes trees grow and rivers flow and the sun shine. And everything works out in reality, uh, in nature pretty well. And that can be our reality too. And we can experience this reality. And yes, it includes, you know, discomfort sometimes and disease and death and all these other things. But it needn't stress us out. You know, when a snake dies, they just sort of know it's time to go, and they slither to a branch, and they just stop eating, and then they just very gracefully go. No big deal. You know? Uh, I don't think trees have existential angst. You know? I don't think, you know, a river is too bothered by the fact that, you know, a particle of river up in, uh, what is it? What is the source? Is it Lake Itasca? The real source of the clouds, of course, but let's call it like a task. I don't think they get too stressed out that pretty soon they're going to be, you know, down by New Orleans. The next thing they're going to be in the ocean. You know, it's like, oh no, I'm not going to be myself anymore because I'm going to be in the ocean. I don't think that happens. And I think that this direct experience of reality is—it goes in that direction. So we can, we actually just completely understand ourselves differently and don't take ourselves that serious so seriously anymore in that old way. In some ways, more seriously than ever. But I think that's. I'm just riffing a little bit here to kind of open up the topic. Um, So Sayadaw has a real interesting method, which I'd like to describe a little bit. Um, And then um, I'll try to stop with the exposition at around uh, maybe 10 or 15 minutes after 8 so we can have a little discussion, and so I hope you might be thinking about questions that might come up or um, experiences that you've had that you might want to share, um, and so we can we can talk about this a little bit. So, um, uh, just to read out of the book a little bit, um, the way it's set up is. Um, Just to say a word about Saito kind of the essence of the way he teaches meditation. So his his, um, stress on meditation is actually not on formal sitting meditation, but rather it's on what we might call daily life meditation. That is, um, as he says, uh, attempting to maintain uh, mindful awareness uh, at all times, as he puts it, from the moment you wake up until the moment you fall asleep. So waking up, you know, there's usually that period where you're you're out of the dream state, but you haven't yet opened your eyes and started to move around. Um, but that's right in there. You can start to meditate. You can, in the sense that you can be aware that you're aware, and you can notice the body. You can notice thoughts. Um, you can notice feeling sensations, and um, you can do any of the other practices that you've learned. You can do meta meditation at that point, or there are many things you can do. Um, but then to just keep keep mindful awareness as you go throughout the whole day, um, and, and through every step, and um, that's really the emphasis. And of course, this is the way meditation has been practiced by monks and nuns in the Buddhist tradition uh, for two and a half thousand years, right? Um, and it is today still the way that meditation is practiced in Buddhist monasteries, and increasingly by lay people such as ourselves. But this approach to meditation, or this fundamental understanding of meditation, is still relatively new in the West, and Sayadaw is actually a great proponent of this. He's bringing, he's a proponent of bringing this, you know, ancient mode of of being twenty four seven mindful awareness, you know, to the lay to to the lay population. And he's saying it's not as hard as you think it is. Um, a lot of people will say, you know, oh, I have a tough enough time doing thirty minutes on the cushion or five minutes sometimes. What, I'm supposed to do it all day? And, um, you know, coming back to a little bit of a theme that in, in, in my talk is like, well, yeah, that's what your mind says. You know, On our mind isn't doing us any favors when it interprets things that way. But it's very typical of the mind to, to, for thoughts to come up and say, ridiculous, impossible. Yeah, that, that, that's true, because from the level of our logical thinking mind, it pretty much is impossible. But there's just another dimension to us that it's a snap. And it's getting to be familiar with that dimension and skillful with that dimension that makes it all possible. And Sayadaw's method is one that brings us right into that dimension. And so one of the things he talks about is you know, why it's quite easy to meditate all day long in this way. And this is what I want to tease out uh, in the talk, a little bit more um, to give it to give you an idea of how practical it really is, and, and how achievable and possible it really is. Um, the The book is structured in a way um, that I hope makes it very you know useful for people who are in daily life, and, and as a, as a as a as a handbook for daily life meditation in this way. So, for example. The book is structured initially off of um, a series of talks that Sayadaw gave at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in 2015. I was at that retreat. I recorded the talks, and I transcribed all the talks. And on the first day of the 14-day retreat, he kind of gives an overview of this style of meditation, and he gives some guidelines on, on this form of meditation, and then you just practice it for the rest of the 13 days. So in this book, the first section of the book there's three sections. The first section of the book is basically a transcription of that first day's talk. And he says, um, he says there's three um, basic principles to this type of meditation. One is what he calls right attitude. The second one is what he calls right effort. These are Buddhist terms, right effort especially. And the third is right view. Um, and this is just a real cursory overview to give you a taste. Right attitude is the attitude of Um, When you're sitting, you're not trying to create any particular type of experience, right? Like you're not sitting to become peaceful. Um, You're not sitting to become joyful or happy. You're sitting to know clearly whatever is happening right now. Can you see how if you sit and you're trying to move your mind state one way or the other, that's actually going to cloud your ability to see the way things are because you're trying so hard to do one thing or another that, that those that that striving is going to get in the way of you know just accepting is what what is here that's the only real basis firm basis that we can have for improvement is to just be really clear about what's happening right now so right attitude is just accepting what's happening right now right effort is basically persistent effort it's just coming back again and again and you know why we need to do that because the mind keeps coming in and wanting to take us away to worries about the past or uh, regrets about the past or worries about the future or fantasies of enjoyment or whatever. And all of those things take us away from what's actually happening right now. So right effort is just very patiently returning to the present moment over and over again. And right view, in some senses the most important of all, is, um, is, is understanding that whatever is happening right now it's just nature unfolding. It's 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 like, you know, what's happening in a tree right now is just treeness replicating. You know, treeness, 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 and um, and a cloud is just cloudness is just happening, and um, you know the wind and all things in nature. It's relatively easy to see nature as just nature happening, right? But this is also nature, and the right view is just recognizing that even though. Our mind, there's that mind again, is telling a story about, oh, here's Doug, you know, making things happen his way and, and you know, bringing in all the positive things for Doug and keeping all the negative things out and, and you know, oh, everything's going according to plan and that type of thing. Um, well, that's nature happening. That's true. But it's nature happening in a way that's creating suffering. And right view is to just recognize that. Um, you know, the impersonality, you could say, of what's happening. That everything's happening now is just the consequences of causes and conditions that are manifesting right at this moment. And, uh, you know, if we can bring that attitude to what's happening, we're not going to get stressed out about stress itself because it's just the lawful consequence of things that came before. And uh, at the same time, we can recognize that if, cons- that if um, conditions before led to right now, what's happening right now, that actually empowers us because then we recognize that we we can through wholesome and skillful effort change the conditions right now that make it more likely that positive things will happen, you know, down the line. Um, and in other words, we will just set a lawful um, sequence of things in motion that will uh, eventuate positively rather than negatively. So that's right view. So. That first chapter is those basic principles. And then the middle section of the book is 31 days of very short meditations that are actually, most of them, taken from Saido's own... Um, he, every morning uh, at, on the retreat, he would give like a 20-minute uh, or even shorter Dhamma talk. And and he would offer some suggestions on how to use the mind and the body that day. Oh, and then over a 14-day period, he leads you through um, mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of uh, feeling tones and mindfulness of the mind um, that go to progressively and progressively deeper and deeper levels of the mind so that again we can come to that level where the little sparks start you know that would either go towards raging fires or go towards nice warm you know uh, um, nourishing um, hearth fires uh. So there's 31 short, um, short meditations, and they're meant to be able to, re- to be read on a daily basis, once a day. They're, most of them are hardly more than a page long. And then there's a final section that kind of wraps things up. So that's just no, that's an overview of the book, but it's also an overview of Sayadaw's practice. Um, so. I wanted to. I wanted to um, before we look in a little more detail in the actual, um, you know, let's say um, the more more specifics in terms of how we want to work with the mind in order to. Sometimes the word purify is used, but it doesn't mean purify in the sense of make morally good. It means purify the mind so that, um, you know, fewer stressful thoughts arise and more healthy thoughts arise. If you put it like that. I wanted to drop in and just expand a little again before we get to that kind of more kind of skillful means kind of thing I wanted to bring out one one of these premise concepts a little bit more cuz it's just so important and that is awareness itself I'd like to just talk about awareness itself for f- just a few minutes and um because you know as as Saido himself says um Let's see if I got this quote in my. Well, I, I know it's from heart, by heart. He Jesus says, put all of your energy into awareness. Awareness, awareness, awareness. That's what he says. Put all of your energy into awareness. Awareness, awareness, awareness. When he says a thing like that, and he says this in different ways, you know, throughout all of his teachings. He's saying the way I interpret it and I'll try to put little flags by it. sometimes I'll use awareness in a slightly different way than he, he does I'll try to explain that but and I know that sometimes certain side-off purists might disagree with me a little bit on this before they hear my disclaimer but he's saying as as I understand it is like there's only one thing that ever happens and that's awareness that's how I understand it. What do I mean by that? And what does the Buddha mean by that, as I understand the Buddha? Well, it's just kind of simple. It's like any experience that you ever have, well, let me put it this way. Words don't quite, you can't quite get to it exactly, but where, where does any experience happen, any experience at all? Like right now, you're looking at me. Now, the mind says, there's that mind again. The mind says, I'm 20 feet away. That's what the mind says, right? So I'm here, and you're there. The mind will say, I'm here, and you're there. But get subtle. Where is where's it really happening? Where am I really happening for anybody in here? Where am I happening? I'm happening in your consciousness. Which isn't necessarily yours. The mind put, says it is, but let's for now be okay with that. Where am I really happening? My voice is happening in your consciousness. The image of me is happening in your consciousness. You're the reactions and thoughts and things that are being sparked by what i said is all happening within you and this is starting to get at what the buddha what the buddha and saido is saying when he says we want to have a direct experience of reality and this is suggesting is it not that what we normally take to be to be reality is like one big illusion and and um and it really is a very, very convincing illusion. It's so convincing, it's like we don't even question it. For instance, the whole idea of here and there. We don't question it, because it just looks so obvious. There's here's here, and there's there. But gets subtle. It's only happening here, and there's no way to point to it. I go this way, but it's not like that. It's more like it's just for each one of us. Our actual experience is always here, just like it's always now. Where do thoughts of the past happen now? Where does the thought of the future happen now? That one's quite common. We often will come to that conclusion. It kind of wakes us up. But it's the same with here and there. Everything's just happening here, and it's happening now. That's starting to get towards what I think the, what is talking about when he says a direct experience of reality is the only thing that's ever actually happening is here and now, and there's no distance, and there's no separation, you know? I mean, I can look down and I see these legs and these arms and and I see these legs and these arms and all these bodies, but where are they all happening? Here. There's really no separation. It's all happening right here, right now. And and, and what's the word for, what which we give for that there is, or that here is awareness. And I think this is starting to get towards yes, what we're talking about. It's awareness and um the more we delve into that the more we learn and it's not like that's easy to do at first because you know we're not trained to notice awareness we spend all of our lives looking at what appears in awareness all these objects out there and so uh, when when the instructions are to observe awareness we don't really know where to look or how to look we haven't had instructions but all of the Buddhist teachings are about that. They're about how to notice awareness, be aware of it, and then to be skillful in its use. Because just think, if you could take control of that place where everything happens, are you going to act in a way that leads on towards happiness or leads on towards misery? You'll choose happiness every time. And it's all within our grasp. It's all possible. And... The Buddhist teachings, including the four foundations of awareness, which is his like original, you know, meditation lesson, is all about how to take charge of what happens right here. And we can always decide, no matter what happens externally, whether it's you know, going to give us physical pleasure or not, or make our lives comfortable or not. We can always have total control over what happens in this awareness. That's what. That's the promise, I think. Um, and so. Now I'm just opening up this topic of awareness, um, and I think that this is when he's when the when the do, uh, when Sayadaw says, you know, a direct experience of reality will really profoundly affect our practice and change our way of life. I think he's saying a direct experience of awareness, because reality happens in awareness, or what we call reality happens in awareness, and to the mind this is a, a totally new thing. You know, no one ever really explained things to us this way, but that's what the practice is, I think. And also this actually opens up a whole a whole field of possibilities, which, again, I think Sayadaw really addresses in his book. So, for example, um, in this book and in his teaching. So, for example, just take a real simple meditation instruction, the one that I'm sure all of us know very well, which is when we're sitting, we close our eyes, we take take a few breaths, we relax, and then we... We watch the breath. You know that meditation instruction? Watch the breath. And the instruction is to watch the sensations of breathing. And then when we notice we've gotten lost in thoughts or we're into a fantasy or something, then the instruction is to return awareness to the sensations of the breath. But Sida offers a little bit of a different instruction. He says, return to awareness. Return to awareness. And then the mind gets a little bit confused about that because, wait, am I supposed to go to awareness or am I supposed to go to the breath? But then you recognize that where is the breath happening? Where is the sensations of breath happening? It's happening in awareness. So then the idea then is to start to cultivate like a direct feeling understanding of what the breath is like when it is noticed through awareness because awareness is the fundamental reality. What is it like to return to awareness? Some people say, well, you know, this, this instruction is weird. because It says to return to awareness all day long, but, you know, like, I'm a heart surgeon. You know, I, I need to be keeping my eyes on the guy's heart. And down in Rochester, you find that quite a bit, actually. You know, people come to meditation center. You know, I'm a surgeon. I can't be, like, going to my awareness. Well, wait a minute. Where's your surgery actually happening? That heart is happening in that surgeon's awareness. And um, in fact, everything that ever happens is there. So when you go to your awareness, you're not going to some place where there is no reality. That's where the whole reality is. But the magical thing is that the more you do the practice, the more you recognize that everything that you experience actually has the qualities of awareness and not the qualities we normally thought that things had, like solidity and density and pain and hearness and location. Things start to have the qualities of awareness which are the qualities like luminosity, spaciousness, emptiness, there's a good Buddhist word, um, clarity, um, and so on. And so this is the trans, now that I think, now we're getting to the, you know that part of the initial quote is, a direct experience of reality is an experience of awareness. It will prof- profoundly uh, change the way you live your life because reality itself starts to feel different. When you're noticing all the time that it's happening within awareness, and that all things have the qualities of awareness, which are actually fantastic qualities, and they're all the ones that we've been searching for all this time, right there in awareness. You know, this is why I wanted to bring out this topic a little bit more, because that's what this book is actually. It's like, uh, for some reason, the word spelunking just came to mind, but it's like a spelunker's guide to awareness. Yeah, it's like you really you dive deep in there and 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 it's a, it's a it's a guide to awareness noticing it, what it is what the qualities of it and bringing you more and more to a direct experience of it not filtered through our concepts but dropping the concepts and just noticing Oh, this is the way it is and the way it is is fantastic that's the possibility um you know, it's it's really wonderful. You, the, the more you get on this path, the more you start to see things and things occur to you. Um, I was just thinking about, for example, um, this morning actually at our Sunday set, um, there was a, a woman there who was responding because I gave this talk on Thursday night at the Rochester Meditation Center, and she said, "Oh, there was something you said in there. It was like, whoa." She goes, oh." I, it just completely changed these last 3 days for me and i said oh how how was that and she goes well you said just keep returning to awareness and she said it was like a doorway to just this immense spaciousness where everything was okay i said high five on that one <laughs> right on you know that's it that's what she was experiencing it was like and in going instead of going back to the sensations of breath it was go back to awareness and the the breath was right there but it was as awareness and it was just it was literally mind-blowing for her. And that was fantastic. Wow, that's great. The teaching really got through there. And then she was saying, like, um, she said, oh, I don't want this to go. I don't want this feeling to go. Don't worry about that, you know. And she said, you know, it just keeps coming back. She said, Over these past three days, it keeps coming back. They just go back to awareness. I said, yeah, that's right, because that's one of the qualities of awareness. So, for example, have you noticed, like, when you're sitting? Sitting for 30 minutes, let's say. It's like, well, maybe the first 20 minutes just goes by and you're in some fantasy, you know. And then suddenly it comes like, wait a minute, I'm sitting here, and you come right back to here. Now that to me is that is that is a quality of awareness that it it is asserting itself. This is so gosh, this is This is strong. It's like awareness is constantly asserting itself because it wants to be known it wants to come out and it's constantly pushing against the concrete of our thoughts it wants to get through it's the sapling it's just cracking through you know so if you're sitting here for 20 minutes in a fantasy and it, that little memory to come back to right now is that sapling wanting to crack through the concrete of our thoughts you know which is like laid down layer by layer and I have to say it's like in some sense it's Timeless because obviously exist in the time of the Buddha, so they were laying concrete back then, too, apparently, in the mind. But man, oh man, you can all too easily see our educational system as laying concrete over awareness, you know, and not to mention our uh, like advertising. Uh, And and many other of our institutions are basically just suppressing and pushing, you know. And there's this seedling called awareness just wanting to crack up and be life. It just wants to be life. Wants to come out and wants to blast the concrete and just be a tree. And so, like for each one of us to recognize that we want to be a tree, you know, or a flowing river, or a cloud, or just a blue sky. That's a great thing, yeah. And I swear, I think when artists break through and they have a moment of uh, inspiration or when a basketball player is in the zone and keeps dunking the ball like the basket's this big, I mean, that's what's happening. Life is coming through, and life is making things happen with the intelligence that only life knows, not the mind, but the intelligence of life. So that's my little riff on awareness. And... uh, so let me just say a couple of things then about um, this, just to just kind of give you again a taste of the actual. Um, I almost call it a system, but you know, there there are steps to this um, practice. So let me just give you an idea of the steps, and then let's open it up for conversation. Um, so you could say that there are two steps. It's a vast simplification, but in some ways, not really. But he says um, that the point of um, practice is to change the quality of our awareness. And uh, so if you can just touch into the kind of classic um, you know, binary formulation um, in uh, you know, meditative teaching, that anything that ever happens right now, there's only two things. And Sayadaw says this, too. It's, there's only two things. There's objects that are appearing in awareness like thoughts um, or body sensations or perceptions through the five senses those things are popping up and of course they're only lasting for a fairly short period of time like thoughts and then they then they're going back down within into into awareness so there's objects that are appearing within awareness and then there's awareness so objects are that which is known and then awareness is that which knows okay Um, and so the problem you could say then just using this real simple schema the reason why they're suffering is because the mind there's that mind again um, so we need to be a little careful about how that thing is working what does the mind like? the mind likes to look at the objects likes to really focus on the objects one reason it likes to look at the objects is like some objects a small but meaningful percentage like chocolate cake create positive physical sensations. So, um, and in evolutionary terms, those objects are also, you know, like when it's not a chocolate cake, but it's like corn or, uh, you know, honey or something. It's like we want to go to that because that helps the body survive. So our our mind tends to go to objects. And in, more specifically, it tends to grasp at the objects that it likes that gives pleasant sensations. But can you see how that's the root of suffering? Because the mind if, if the mind is in charge it will just keep going to objects all the time to get that positive hit you know that that pleasant sensation and what's going to happen if it just keeps going to objects like that it, that turns into addiction and grasping all the time so the mind is just always going to objects and why would you not want to go to objects over and over again well because objects are always disappearing because that's the, that's the nature of objects they arise and they pass away like a thought and so the mind keeps it's on this, this dysfunctional loop where it keeps presenting an object, and then we grasp, and then it dis- the object disappears, and we have to grasp again, and suddenly we're caught like this. We're in tension all the time. That's kind of the basic problem. And so the, the solution that the, the Buddha offers and Sida offers is change the attention so that it keeps going to awareness and not to objects. So just leave objects alone, let them do their thing, arise, pass away, but just keep noticing the, objects, the, the object as happening within awareness and keep your attention on the awareness in a very loose, open, kind of unfocused way, noticing. And um, the quali- when, when, when uh, Siddharth says change the quality of awareness, he's talking about awareness that has the three unwholesome roots in it, desire, aversion, or delusion, You know, you just if you keep your eye on awareness, and you just notice if it's got one of those three unwholesome roots, just the noticing of that, not getting involved and not trying to change it, but just noticing it, does over time tend to purify awareness of those unwholesome roots. So if you notice, you know, the desire coming up for chocolate cake, you can just notice it, but not act on it. Just be patient, notice, 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 and pretty soon that desire which is a, comes up as a, as a thought originally, it goes away because all objects disappear. And so changing the quality of awareness as opposed to changing the objects of awareness is the first step in Sayadaw's method. And a lot of the daily meditations here have to do with just noticing the quality of mind at any time and seeing whether there's, whether there's grasping or aversion happening. And if there is, don't sweat it. Don't get worried. Just notice, and pretty soon those things relax because all things relax inside awareness. And just to, um, so the second part of the process I've already kind of incorporated is, is, he says, to just keep examining the habits of liking and disliking. So I've almost already explained that, which is to just notice what's happening in awareness at any time because pure awareness will bring all the things that you wanted but awareness can have in it grasping, which will create tension because of of this you know clenched nature of grasping, or aversion, which will have tension in it because you're trying to push away what you don't like, and that also has you're uh, you're you're your, your tensing like armor in that case. And to just be aware of that will tend to relax that as well. So he spends a lot a lot of the daily meditations are about changing the quality of awareness or. Um, Just keeping an eye on our likes and dislikes, because you know likes and dislikes are very uh, helpful for from evolutionary perspective. But once we've got our basic survival down, you know, we just make ourselves miserable by defining life in terms of chasing what we like and avoiding what we dislike. It starts to become a real, a real trap. So I've left 15 minutes or so, maybe, maybe 13. Um, It says here. Please remind folks that the question and answer period is being recorded. Um, but if you have any questions or comments or anything, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the ideas that Sido has brought up here. Yeah, can you pass the? Thank you.
3: Yeah, hi, I'm Dan. Enjoyed the talk as usual, Doug. Um, isn't could it be said that the word illusion that you use which has to me kind of a sharp western definition about it the word illusion uh-huh. um, would it be um, uh, could it be better represented I guess by saying when the illusion is is when we you know reach for that that thing that's not going to make us happy it's mm-hmm. not so much what we're doing is an illusion but mm-hmm. um, Philosophically, I totally get that. In fact, on it's just it's kind of an interesting thing that I enjoy probing, just by the nature of it. But I'm thinking more of the fact that, um, you know, I, over the years I've learned to appreciate the uh, the Pali words, and so when you have like a samadhi, um, the you can appreciate the fact that you're having samadhi, and when you start reaching for it and grasping it,
2: mm-hmm.
3: isn't mm-hmm. that the illusion that you speak about?
1: Um, Yes, that would be a good example. I think um, that's a good question that you ask about illusion. Um, So let me try to answer it in a particular way. I'm not sure if it'll address your issue with that word. But um, one distinction that's really important to keep in mind is when you use the word illusion, you're not saying that the thing doesn't exist. You're saying that it, it doesn't exist in the way you think it does. In other words, it doesn't have the qualities that you think it does or that you bring to it, but it definitely exists. So for instance, you could think of an optical illusion. I have one that I hand out in class sometimes, which is like it just it's got it's got like ten lines that are all, you know, at, at acute angles to each other like this, and you're looking at it like really it really looks like that, you know? And then the little caption in the book on optical illusion says these lines are parallel and you're looking at they're they're like this, you know, there, there's no way, you know. But in fact, if you get out a ruler, they actually are like that. And if you look at it, if if you look at the paper, instead of this way, you look at the paper horizontally, they all straighten out and they are, in fact, horizontal. So mm, it's not that they don't exist, they just are not the way that you think they are. And um, that's a very helpful thing to keep in mind um, with that that word illusion. Um, And um, the thing is like, if you make assumptions about the essential and true nature of a thing, because it's so obvious to you in the sense of being real and not illusory, and then you start to behave towards that thing as if it actually had those properties, but it actually doesn't have those properties, it has other ones, you're in an automatic uh, you know, fight with that. You're not going to be in sync with it, because the actual properties that it has are actually different, and you're interpreting it wrongly. So you could call it illusory in that way.
3: So to dovetail, um, the, um, the constant awareness keeps probing for some change that's going on in what you're describing. As, as subtle as that is, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's next to impossible for me to do at work, you know, because mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. just go into work mode. Mm-hmm. And to sit back and kind of see myself from a more mindful perspective, it's just it's just so black and white. Uh-huh. And I just kind of accept that. I mean, I you know, uh-huh. but uh, but to get to that subtle awareness where you see the movement uh-huh. in, away from what your expectations are—that's the, I guess that's what I'm hearing you say there.
1: I think yeah. I think awareness is very attuned to noticing change, and, and even more so, you could say noticing the actual qualities as opposed to the qualities that are asserted by concepts and, men, and the mentality. Yeah, it, I think awareness does very much have that that, um, that capacity to see things as they really are.
2: Yeah, yeah I read a book by uh, Syed. Uh, it was one we were working with as a group here with Mark. And mm-hmm. um, this is something that really brought a lot of ease to my practice that he said about right effort and awareness. Well, he said that awareness is is always on. It's there, you Mm -hmm. know, if you notice it. And right effort is not some great striving. Mm -hmm. It's it's just just a simple interest, just a genuine, simple interest. Yeah. And uh, the reason that things, objects arise in your awareness is simply so you can see if there's an attachment to them. Anyway, so that that was something something that really helped me. Absolutely. The simplicity of it, right? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Thank you. I I couldn't agree more, you know, and I think um, that's one reason why, you know, referencing what you just said, I I, I really like to use the word awareness rather than mindfulness because um, to me, awareness as a word points more directly and simply to something that just is. It's that which knows, not that it can be located anywhere. Um, or even defined in words, for sure. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's the only thing we ever experience, as I mentioned. Um, and so um, it's handy to have a word for that. Whereas for me, the word mindfulness tends to have a lot of different meanings, and, and it can mean one thing to one person, another to another. So just linguistically, I kind of like the word awareness.
2: Yeah, I think mindfulness sounds like something you have to generate or create. Or do. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas awareness just, just is. Just is. is just there, yeah.
1: And, exactly. And you know what? Ease ultimately is just being. And that's one of the things if we find awareness and have a direct experience of reality as awareness, that means we can have a direct experience of just being, without striving, without efforting. And it's always there. Like you dis- like you discovered.
2: Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks.
0: Hi. Um, I'm Amber. Um, I find that...
1: What's your name? I'm sorry. Name I should is, have asked you guys' names, too. That's what?
0: okay. My name is Amber. Hammer. Amber. Yeah. Amber. Hi, Amber. Hi. Um, I had an experience today that is interesting. I work in um, customer service and um, trying to bring my awareness in every day to my daily life, not just on the mat. And... Um, Something I find is coming into that awareness is the stories that I tell myself about items or other people. And today there was a very particular instance where um, I work in a restaurant, and we have regulars that come in all the time. And and you you create a story about these people that is maybe true, maybe not true. It doesn't matter. It's just your story. Um, but with being aware, <laughs> you just become aware of the story. And I found myself today just, I happen to be more aware, apparently, with this person who um, comes in regularly and I have a story in my head and then he had a, a an issue that I had to deal with and I find myself using this story in my head against the person that mm-hmm. isn't necessarily true. Um but you want to hold or i personally want to hold that because that's my truth and it makes me right or it mm-hmm. makes me yep. feel like i know something i don't know um but i do find that that with the practice those things go way way more quickly or mm-hmm. i find i hate to say the error of my ways or saying but I find it way more easy to just let that go, that I see it. I see what I th- thought yeah. and allow it to dissipate then and move forward with what is right now. What's the actual truth, capital T of the moment, yeah. rather than what is my story telling me? Yeah. Um, and I used to think that I couldn't use mindfulness at work because I've got to get stuff done. And uh-huh. But it allowed me to deal with the situation in a much more positive Yeah way for me
1: yeah amber i yeah thanks for that i think that's a very accurate um description of how uh continuous awareness really works to defuse situations and to keep open possibilities for um you know good relationship and problem solving rather than uh going by your story and and in in so doing make sure that it stays on the track towards difficulty yeah and I'd use your question as a little bit of a platform to um, to just throw out another one of Sid's I think super helpful kind of pointers, which is that you know awareness or the skill of using awareness is not about focusing, but rather uh, bringing up what he calls just light awareness. So now, again, the mind will always say in order to understand something, you have to know everything in super detail, you know, because that's the way the mind works. It focuses and it, it analyzes and it compares and it itemizes. But just light awareness is more like what you were describing to me at work, where you keep a, a, just a kind of a light overview, you know, and uh, recognize there's a very profound intelligence that's at work in the background. That's, that's why I'm talking about the intelligence of life. You don't have to do it. It's being done. But you, what you need to do is just stay aware so that a lot of input is coming in and is going to that level where things will get worked out at that level and the next thing you know, a solution is popping out. You know? Just because you stayed aware and you know, you're just noticing and you're letting things feed in and it goes to that level where nature works it out and the next thing you know, like I said, boop. Oh, if I say something this way or look this way, that'll kind of solve the situation in the present moment and that's how awareness works. In a, in a light way, not a focusing, grasping way. I think we've got... Actually, I think it's 8.30, so I want to respect everybody's time here. Um, thanks a lot for having me, guys.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website,